Hello and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I'm, of course, your moderator, and I'm here with Father Chuck. What's up? And uh, we are here, and uh, we're the Masters of Divinity. And uh, hey, how's it going? Hey, I realized my little WhatsApp thing was kind of out of left field. I know, so it felt weird, like, 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 like '90s beer commercial or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, remember how funny that was? I don't. I. Uh, mm. You know what? That was a very popular commercial, wasn't it, Chuck? It was a very popular commercial. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, well, I, I, I'm still kind of baffled at how like, like it, it really was like very funny. Like it, it, there were there were T-shirts, mm-hmm. and they the the guys who came up with it, who conceived of it, who directed and acted it, showed up on like Oprah. I mean, was I, I feel like it was uh, the first instance of a commercial, at least like 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 maybe not the very first, but like the like the one that like really entered into the like popular you know zeitgeist of where the commercial was not necessarily it was like a piece of entertainment, yeah, only tangentially related to the product it was selling. Do you remember what it was selling? Because I don't. It was it was beer. It was Budweiser. Oh, was it? Okay, so then the, was it because it was was it a Super Bowl commercial? Yeah, it was the follow up. I believe it was like the follow up to the uh, Three Frogs, the whole Bud Weiser. Remember that thing? Yeah, like I, yeah, I <clears throat> freaking love. I think it was Bud Light. I think it might have actually specifically been Bud Light where they were doing the whole was that thing. Uh, typical. Uh, <laughs> um, interesting. It's interesting that we bring that up because today we're going to be talking about advertising and commercialism with our guest Don Draper. Hey, Don, what's going on? <laughs> I can't. You can't really do like a Don Draper impression, right? Or maybe somebody. Maybe somebody can, but I can't. Like steely cold stare, <laughs> just just staring at us and trying while to drinking f- an old fashioned, trying to figure out how to get money from us in some way, and just <laughs> completely destroying culture and relationships. Um, so we're going to talk about commercialism, uh, but well, within the context of a certain era, uh, we're talking about uh, the eighties. And 80s childhood uh, cartoons and toys and how it sort of ties in. And also kind of how it affects us today. And uh, I think a lot of people will be very surprised about um, the history of this. I have this whole article from a column called Dr. Toon. from a guy named Martin Goodman from the Animation World Network uh, uh, website, awn.com. Chuck, have you ever heard the expression, uh, the 80s was the best time to be a kid? Uh, more than a few times. I believe I've uttered that phrase a few times. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, well, today we're going to find out just why the 80s was the best time to be a kid. So let's get started. Okay. Uh, in the world of animated children's programming, free enterprise and federal regulations are not always the best of friends. Uh, the FCC was often called upon to enforce regulations concerning the amount and nature of advertising that could be aired during programs aimed specifically at children. The FCC sometimes partnered with the National Association of Broadcasters in order to ensure that commercials did not overwhelm television broadcasting. That's hard to imagine. Mm. Um, from 1946, with the publication of its Blue Book, uh, which is a document limiting commercial airtime, until 1983... The FCC did a fairly good job at it, despite broadcasters who occasionally figured out ways to flaunt the code. 
1963, the FCC lost a key battle against the broadcasters and with it the ability to make or enforce any rules related to uh, a number or re related to number or length of commercials. It was finally decided in 1974 that the FCC could enforce regulations that kept advertising on any sort of TV program to a maximum of 16 minutes per hour. Do you know what that number is today? <laughs> like, um, it's got to be a, at least over 20 minutes, right? Let's see, 16 minutes. Uh, so, wow, 16 minutes in an hour. Whereas I feel like, I feel like it's every like like easily 10 minutes or more of a of a broadcast television show is dedicated to commercial airtime. I mean, I remember when when the Chappelle show came out on DVD, like a series on DVD, and I was watching with friends, and I was shocked. You know, on the DVD player, you can see the episode length. Right. Yeah. I remember being shocked that each episode was only really about like 15, 16 minutes long because oh, the no. rest of it was commercials. Yeah. And it was a half-hour show. And that was uh, <laughs> Comedy Central was supposed to be cable, and like the big draw to cable right. was like, no commercials. Uh, right. <laughs> Still, loopholes remained, and the FCC was sometimes called to task by public watchdog groups who pointed out the abuses in the system. Perhaps the most vigilant group was Actions for Children's Television, or uh, ACT, founded in 1968 by Evelyn Sarson and Peggy Karen. Boston-based ACT would eventually have 20,000 members and a half a million dollar operating budget, but it, would still, uh, but it was still a grassroots organization when it took on the show Romper Room, as its first target. Do you know what Romper Room is? No. It's kind of like a children's uh, program, sort of like a Bozo the Clown, kind of like a okay. children's variety show from okay. like, way back in the day. I think it was mostly based out of like New Jersey. Uh, our, our good friend John Losorso was apparently in an episode. Nice. <laughs> uh, nice. Good for John. <laughs> this popular preschool program advertised its own branded line of toys, pitched by the show's host. Uh, Act threatened to turn the matter over to the FCC unless local television, unless local TV station WHDH made the program conform to current regulations. WHDH backed down, and Act had its first victory. Uh, during the 1970s, Act tried to get advertising banned from children's broadcasting altogether, but reached a compromise with uh, the uh, uh, NAB in, in 1973 that limited advertising to 12 minutes per hour. Wow. Yeah. ACT then began a campaign to have advertising banned from all programming aimed at preschoolers. Uh, the activist group challenged the broadcasters on many other fronts regarding programming content. In short, ACT was a force to be reckoned with when, whenever the group felt that the FCC was not enforcing regulatory standards. Unfortunately, Sarson and Karen were about to run up against a force far greater than, the, far greater than, than any TV station. Uh, the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. The Gipper. So, I mean, do, do you, Chuck, do you know of any organizations or watchdogs that, that uh, are used to sort of keep tabs on advertising today? Um, there are a few. I don't know the names of them, um, but I do know that there are a few of there. There are a few out there, but they're there? gutless. I mean, they're I mean, they're pretty much just like, you know, people yelling into the void <laughs> about about advertising like there's just not there's not nothing like with the power like act out right. there i mean uh, i think i think the, the the stuff that we see that the most prominent is like it's targeted at particular like industries like the tobacco industry or like the alcohol you know alcohol industry i know like right you know there are people you know calling on 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 like the 
FC, uh, the FDA and others to pay attention to the way that like e-cigarettes are being marketed because the argument is that it's being targeted toward like middle and high school aged people. Um, but yeah, but, but, just, like- but just based on principle alone and, and in terms of advertising, mm-hmm. it's not, not really nothing like that. No. no. So yeah. So can you imagine like a time when people actually like, you know, cared and took those kinds of measures? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, so Ronald Reagan did not much care for any regulations and un- unduly and hindered business. And the selling of products to an entire nation of children was a big business indeed. When Reagan appointed Mark S. Fowler as commissioner of the FCC on May 18, 1981, children's television would change dramatically. Fowler championed market forces as the determinant of broadcasting content and thus oversaw the abolition of every advertising regulation that had served as a guide for broadcasters. In Fowler's estimation, the question of whether children had the ability to discriminate between the ads and the entertainment was a moot point. The free market, and not organizations such as ACT, would decide the matter. Hmm. Uh, Twelve years before Fowler took the office, the ABC network featured a Saturday morning cartoon show called Hot Wheels. Uh, The show was ostensibly about a a car racing club, but it was noted that Mattel Toys sold a line of miniature racing cars known as Hot Wheels. Uh, the FCC passed lessons in mind. He considered the show to be an extended commercial for the toy cars and threatened to pull the series from the air. ABC argued that the toys were never actually advertised, but the show, under continual scrutiny for two years, was canceled. Hot Wheels was to be the last controversy the FCC would face. Under Fowley's new hands of policy, uh, the issue never would have been contested. The television cartoons of 1981 to 1982 were seemingly bound by the old regulations, but it was not long before the barriers came crashing down. And the first barbarian at the gate was a cheerful yellow sphere named Pac-Man, who made his debut on September 25th, 1983, a landmark date in the history of children's television. Uh, Pac-Man was not created by a studio or a writer, nor was he entirely original. He was, in fact, a video game character licensed by Nintendo. Hanna-Barbera Studios, creators of so many original animated programs since 1959, partnered with the Japanese company to produce a cartoon originally known as The Pac-Man Show. And uh, toy and game-based products were now primed to flood the airwaves, unhindered by any form of regulation. Um, so that Pac-Man is sort of what started everything. After that, you had like your He-Man, your Master of the Universe, your Transformers... Uh, your uh, uh, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. And um, Silverhawks, Thundercats, <laughs> um, My Little Pony, Care Bears, She Ra, um, Mask. Let's see. Well, Mask. Um, <laughs> Which I, Mask is mentioned in this article. And like, I, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't, I don't get Mask. <laughs> like, I, I thought it was cool when I was a kid. I watched the intro recently. I was like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> like, what's the point of these making these regular things? So I, I just just make just make advanced vehicles. Don't make them yeah. cars. Don't make why, them motorcycles. Why does the DeLorean need to fly? Um, <laughs> why does the helicopter turn into an airplane? I don't get it. <laughs> Is it really? Did they really have a helicopter into an airplane? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I think I had that toy. That makes no sense. I never thought about it until just now. They wore no sense. masks. For some reason, I don't know. Right. <laughs> so really quick about Mask. I, uh, when I was little, I remember this conversation I had with my mom. I guess I got a hold of a TV guide, 
and I was going through and I found, I can't remember how it happened or I heard about it anyway, there was, um, listed or I guess or maybe we saw it when we were driving by a movie theater. Anyway, on the, on the marquee was, you know, a movie called mask. And at the kid, time as a kid, I was like, Oh my gosh, it's a movie, like a movie. They made a movie out of mask. And my mom was like, yeah, no, it's not that mask because it was, you know, the Eric Stoltz <laughs> the Eric mask. Stoltz movie, yeah. <laughs> She's like, that's sure. just not, not the, not the movie you think it is. It's not, it's not about the cars. It's about, <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's about transformations, but it's not that kind of trend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't get it. I, don't, I guess it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, toy companies adopted several strategies in order to ensure success and estimable profits. In most cases, the toy was developed first and the animated program was then used to promote the line of toys. One example of this was the DIC Kenner Parker show mask. Most of the shows were syndicated, meaning that they could be aired during blocks of time outside of Saturday morning, the traditional hours of children programming shows were ordered by the block rather than by season via strategy known as strip syndication. And a 65-episode series was quite common, with new installments aired daily. Uh, after all, this was advertising, not entertainment. Uh, right. Like, you imagine a 65-long 65, 65 episode season. Um, Jeez. Okay, so the impact of deregulation on children's programming was astounding. Uh, cultural historian Tom Englehart noted that between 1984 and 1985 alone... Cartoons featuring licensed character increased by some 300%. Jeez. And that's all the stuff that you were naming, you know? Oh, yeah. The Super Mario Brothers show. Um, Nintendo Power. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the Nintendo Power Hour. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, my gosh. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Um, and it's kind yeah, of funny. I, I didn't realize this, but, you know, I, I read another article on there talking about, like, TV intros. And, like, what do you think about those intros and those theme songs and stuff? Those were jingles. Oh, yeah. Like, the intro itself was a commercial. Oh, yeah. Showcasing every single character and a nice little tune to go with it. Well, I mean, I think um, G.I. Joe Real American Hero, for me, is an important cultural thing to talk about because yeah. it it hits, I, you know, I you and I are both old school fans of Toy Fair magazine. Yep. And, uh, and so, you know, I've been a toy collector, um, my, my entire life. And so GI Joe hits like a very important piece in like the history of toys of, of children's toys. Um, and it also coincides with this, like it could only be possible really because of, well, two things. One was, um, you know, GI Joe was a longstanding boys action figure created as a, as a sort of uh, a way to address Barbie, the popular Barbie, but for boys. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so they created this, you know, this nine inch tall, uh, articulated doll with Kung Fu grip. Um, you could buy different like costumes and equipment and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that, you know, for GI Joe. And so it was, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, a sort of like Jack of all trades can do anything, um, um, character, but he had no, there was no TV show, you know, this kind of, you know, he was a toy and he had yeah. his own storyline attached to the toy. And, you know, it was kind of built around the idea that boys use their imaginations and create their own scenario and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, as a result of this deregulation stuff that happens, um, Hasbro, um, decides that they want to, um, that they want to revisit GI Joe and remarket GI Joe. And they, and they see this as an opportunity to do something. Cause I know that they had, they had already decided to market the GI Joe real American hero figures. I think before the show ever came out because they, that was early eighties. 
um, when they when they created those. And they that's three three and three fourths three and three fourths of an inch tall is the scale, which is identical in height to the Star Wars action figures. Yes, yeah, Star Wars was you know if, if our audience doesn't know, um, the Star Wars Kenner deal was right. like uh, gargantuan. It was yes. like it was basically like the A bomb that was dropped <laughs> that inspired all of these companies, the the He Man's, the Transformers, the GI Joes, to pursue this market. Right, and it killed. Uh, just as I, we could go on toy history all we want, because I can, th- I'm, I'm pretty, I can talk about this forever. Because <laughs> like, Mego, the Mego figures. Oh yeah, yeah. Were the like that was like the toy line in the late in the like the mid seventies, and really then when Star the, Wars, the Funko Pop of its time. Right, but like they were, but they were very popular toys. And then the company that made, but then Mego, I believe, passed on the license for Star Wars. Oh yeah, everybody. And did. that's why they and like this, right? And Kenner was this little upstart, um, not out of Rhode Island, because Hasbro's out of Rhode Island, or was Kenner out of Rhode Island? Anyway, they were just an upstart. They were just a little upstart toy company, and they offered to make these figures, and they made them in the scale they made them. And you know the reason why they're three and three fourths of an inch? Uh, to fit in the vehicles. That, but also the gas crisis. Oh, really? um, plastic was expensive, and okay. so um, and so that's because a lot of people were criticizing them for not making them bigger. Because every you know all you know there was like a pretty standard size of toys. You know, boys' toys yeah. were like these nine inch, you know, eight inch, nine inch um, GI Joe figures. Um, that's why they did release a few like bigger, like Star Wars doll type figures around the same time because that was sort of a toy standard but they they really drove everything toward this three three-fourths of an inch um um three and three-quarter inch um action figure line but yeah so they can make vehicles they could fit in and also because plastic was expensive they made them smaller that completely changed the the, the toy industry um and then that led to gi joe uh for hasbro to want to uh, revisit its gi joe concept and then that just so perfectly coincided with this deregulation so when they came up with gi joe real american hero they created a storyline and then they were able to create a television show to drive people to buying these things and if you remember the early i mean they you know the the famous uh, every action figure in gi joe had a file card on the back of the little storyline about yes. who these characters were but then they could work that into the scripts of the tv show there was a marvel comic that was also fairly popular um attached but then there was the tv show which was enormous and um do you remember who the marvel uh, writer was that that did the all that gi joe well, stuff larry hama larry hama Right. Yeah, Larry Hama was the was the the file card writer, and um, he actually wrote the script for um, the 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 very first script of the movie that wound up becoming GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra. Yeah, um, he was like cranking out those GI Joe comic books for the for the action figures too, right? Wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was cranking out the uh, the the file cards. Oh, the file and, cards. Okay. And it's so funny because he – I mean he, I've read interviews with him and you know, and this is actually kind of a neat thing to me about this is that because this was this commercialized thing and they just needed content. I mean you think about 65-episode blocks like you said. Like I didn't know it was that big. But you know, they needed content for this. And so they grabbed these writers and it was basically like, look, this, you know, just make the kids – just make the things look cool. <laughs> and so they – these guys got really creative. Yeah. With, with these with um, and I think there's some I think it's worth talking about the some of the storytelling merit that came out of this as a sort of <laughs> lesson that came out of this really shameless corporate plugging, because 
I'll be straight up with you. The only reason that I know not to touch a live downed power line is because G.I. Joe told me not to touch <laughs> well, <laughs> a live downed power line. I know how I to this day remember, you know, if I if I have a bloody nose, I lean forward, not back. Mm. Um, they told me <laughs> to stay out of empty refrigerators in the junkyard. Um, they uh, what else? What, oh, uh, they told me they told me about sun poisoning and how it's important to wear a hat and wear sunscreen. Um I, I mean, the, the drugs, how to avoid drugs. I mean, those little G.I. Joe PSAs attached to the end of each don't, episode don't, where, don't, like... Don't pick up a discarded needle. Yeah. Right? Things like that. Uh, yeah, watch out for that. Wonder one involving a dog biting someone. <laughs> I, don't, I, uh, I don't remember these at all, Chuck. I have no idea. <laughs> are you serious? I don't remember them you at all. You don't remember no. the... No. Um, that the, Knowing is half the battle? I mean, I, I, remember, I, I remember that, but I don't remember any, like, specific what, what any of them were about. I don't remember watching them. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not going to be able to quote one. I'm not, I know what I, – I get the general idea. Listen, when they make, the, when they, when they make their next G.I. Joe movies, because uh, they're talking about making another round of live-action G.I. Joe movies as part of, like, the shared universe with Transformers, um, I, if they were to recreate many of those PSAs with the actors playing the role and release them as YouTube shorts, that is a guaranteed billion-dollar movie. <laughs> nice. Um, that would be really funny, actually. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Um, um, but no, so like – so, I mean, but that's G.I. Joe. That was an existing toy property. They were able to kind of put this 80s Reaganomics spin on to right. create this thing. He-Man was strictly created. Oh, yeah. For, like, as a result of this. Like, Pac-Man was a video game. It's a pre-existing property. Like, we can talk about that, you know, and you've already mentioned that. That was sort of what kickstarted it. But, like, Mask, which sucks. Um <laughs> Um, Transformers, Transformers, we can talk about Transformers is an interesting one because they were, um, they were an offshoot of the, um, Micronauts line that was popular in Japan. And it was two lines. There was a Diaclone and yeah, my, I think that's the one you're talking about. Micronauts. Micronauts, Yeah. They combined the two. Right. And then they created this toy line and then they decided to market them in the United States, but to market in the United States, they felt like they needed to have the cartoon to kind of like drive interest right. in sales to kind of make it into a thing like you know like you know so that it was an event that you went and you bought these rather than just like a cool gimmick you know what's funny though is that the uh and i, I just learned about this this week that um i think it's i think it's micronauts that um was they were like so they're they're, they're they weren't like robots that changed into cars they were little robots that changed into toy cars. And that's why, like, the Bumblebee yeah. thing looks so weird and compact is because it was actually the, – the car was actually supposed to be a penny racer, not like right. an actual car. Right. And so it's, it's kind of funny. You could kind of tell it was, like, ported over from totally different markets and stuff. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, we did that – I mean, the, we did that a lot with um, – uh, they did that a lot with Japanese toys. Um, um, I know there was a. Um, do you remember? Do you remember Exo Squad? In the oh 90s? yeah, hell yeah, dude. So there was sort of like a, a, a like a round two like Exo Squad toy line like after the show w- went off the air um, that was called like I can't. They called it something like Robotech. It was like Exo Squad Robotech, but it was totally the Macross 
toys oh, really? from like the anime uh, of the Macross Agua, of the Robotech show from the 70s. And they just basically like brought over these Robotech toys from Japan and gave them sort of like an, they put them in ExoSquad packaging <laughs> and made it like it was part of the ExoSquad line. Um, for those who don't know, ExoSquad was an incredible, <laughs> incredible toy line that basically if you enjoyed the power loader from uh, Aliens, uh, it was just that. It was just the power loader. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I, me- I remember I, I really wanted a couple of them for Christmas. And I, I was very, very disappointed in how small they were. <laughs> they are very tiny. They're like uh, – They were smaller than G.I. Joe's. Yeah. 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 That was there was that period of time there where they were trying to do like like you know smaller. Yeah. Um, you know the only thing that was ever really successful in being small was micro machines. Right. Gosh, micro machines were so cool, and that, that's an interesting story because that one did not have a show. I feel did, didn't they try to like I feel I'm like sure I feel like did. everything at least tried like there was even a Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons cartoon like yes I remember I was forbidden from watching it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that's I mean, going back to Masters of the Universe. Uh, he, that that story is actually pretty interesting because of how they kind of conceived it. Apparently, there's like three different guys that sort of take credit for actually creating He Man. And um, from what I understand, there's this uh, there was an advertising designer guy. I think his name is George Sweet, who was like uh, just really into like, and this is the '80s, so like people were really into just like getting buff. And like right. working, working out and like building those muscles bigger, faster, stronger. That's all the 80s was, man. And so this guy's like, all right, we want to build a toy that's like better. It's going to blow Star Wars out of the water. And, and this guy was like, okay, well, then let's make it like big and massive and like make all the other toys look puny. And then he like he took this doll called a, a Big Jim doll, mm-hmm. which was, I guess, kind of like a G.I. Joe type doll. I don't know. And he put like sculpty on it and stuff, and it just made this like giant like Conan esque type character. And it's like this guy's named He Man. He's the, the the master of the universe. He has the power. Blah blah blah. And they just like they just kind of ran with it. And um, yeah, it's it's such a the, these shows. Like I said, this is where I think it's so interesting where like the creativity came out of because it was just sort of like the the mentality was like we just have to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> and and so they. Like think just just try to like take a moment and appreciate just how profoundly weird He Man is. Yeah, it's a barbarian show, but it's set in space that features like robots and laser guns. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it it's got this it's it's almost like a Dune esque world. Well, you could tell it's like inspired by by, by Star Wars, like the whole fantasy and different. Yeah, it's like well, Conan the Barbarian was popular, yeah. and then um, and Star Wars is obviously popular, and so they basically kind of tried to merge these two things together, and it's it kind of weirdly works. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting. There, there's actually this great series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us that kind of goes into the history of like all these toys, and it's really interesting. Yeah, I haven't watched that. It's been on my watch list for a while. You should check it out, Chuck. You'd really like it. Um, I think your mom would like it too because you an episode on Barbie. Um, but uh, one story they kind of talk about is how, like, they kind of came up with the stories. Uh, they were trying to pitch it to somebody. Um, I guess, I think it was, was it Mattel that was Masters of the Universe? Yeah, Mattel. Filmation yeah, of Mattel. Mattel. They're trying to sell it to Mattel, and they're not, they're like, well, how, how people, they, they ask the designers, and stuff, like, how is anyone going to know, like, 
who these characters are. I mean, Star Wars has these like three incredible films. What are you doing? And the guy's like, oh, well, there's a comic book. There was not a comic book. <laughs> like, they're like, there's a comic book? They're like, where do you get it? It's like, well, you, you, you get it with a toy. They're like, they were like just making this up on the spot during the pitch. It's amazing. <laughs> and they came out and they were like, okay, now we need to write a comic book <laughs> for this stupid toy. <laughs> so, and that's how they got like, like Marvel involved in stuff. I don't think they got, I don't know if they got Marvel involved with He-Man. I think they got people who worked with Marvel. I don't know. This, and that's, that's another thing I think why, why it works so well. They weren't just dealing with advertisers to come up with this stuff. Right. They were pulling from Marvel. They were pulling from like actual artist pools and stuff to actually come up with things. And this was sort of like a, just like a, like a, like a gold rush for, right. for artists it, and writers. It, yeah, it was like a bizarre. It was like a bizarre um, sort of like emergent art form. Yeah, I mean the guy that, who, who for like said, for storytelling. It's like we're telling stories through toys. Like it's a, it's just such a strange time yeah and who was the guy you said that that did the gi joe file cards with larry hammer and that, that's he basically he wasn't that big at the time was he no like, wasn't he just like a he was actually pretty obscure i think up until the late 90s i yeah. mean until like people started digging into the history of all this stuff they they didn't really larry hammer wasn't given a whole lot of yeah you so know, you, you know, this guy who, who works for marvel not that not that successful not that famous saying like we want you to just basically be stan lee for us you know, yeah. And once you think about it, like this whole thing of like creating the toy first and then creating the comic around and the cartoon, it is kind of Marvel method ish, right? You think about how Stan Lee would come up with an idea, and then like Kirby would go draw it or something. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? That like this is, you know, someone somewhere I'm sure has done is going to has done the work if they haven't already, they should on uh, how much of an impact Marvel has had on American popular culture. Oh, Just yeah. not not necessarily from like the stuff they make, but their method, right? Cause, you know, this is the same kind of deal, right? Like it's like you said, it's the Stanley method, but then it's applied to toys. Right. Um, you know, and then now we're seeing movies that have been influenced by it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, I mean I mean it's kind of happening again once you think about it. Like uh, you know, I think it was um either Kenner or Has or Hasbro created a whole story group of all these writers in LA and they're like, just take all of our properties and turn it into a Marvel cinematic universe thing. And yeah. th they're still working on it. Apparently. <laughs> well, still better than dark universe. <gasps> um, Hey, come on. Hey, Hey, <laughs> it'll have its day. All right. They're just a little bit um, of a slump. <laughs> they just seem to make it horror instead of trying to make it action. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I just, it's such a, this is one of those things where it's like there's just so much to talk about. Yeah. And, you know, the cynic in me is like, like, here's where I'm at right now, JP, getting back to talking about advertising, is I use Adblock software yeah. on all of my computers, support our Patreon. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I pay for the, the, I pay for the like, the like pro plus versions of all of my streaming services so that I can avoid commercials. Yeah. Please support our Patreon. And I, <laughs> I, um, I like, we, we've always muted commercials or turned them off and we teach our children to go boo commercials whenever they show up on, That's on awesome. anything. Um, but like my kids, like they don't ever really see ads yeah. and that's very intentional because we, we don't want that very rich psychological work that's going into developing these things to hit their, to target their little like brains yeah. to make them like, 
let me just tell you one thing that's really interesting in, in for me in raising our kids without see without like commercials. Like I, we, it's it's impossible. One, I just have to acknowledge it is impossible to avoid commercialization and commercialism yeah. for children, especially liking Disney as much as we do. Unless you live like some sort of austere greatest generation on the on the backwoods and right, I mean, we try, that nobody wants to be around. <laughs> right. I mean, we try to we, you know we, we try to control you know, we try to have some kind of oversight you know navigating this commercialized world that is inevitable to live in. Um, but we um. But like my kids will like see pictures of like PJ masks. They've seen like maybe two things involving that show in their entire lives. Yeah. And they're like, it's PJ masks. I want to watch that. And like how crazy it. They can just look at characters right. on a billboard and it's just like, it triggers something. It's, in like, them. it's like they live, you know, like, yeah. Or, <laughs> or like, um, or like the other day, Charlie was playing with some toy that we got from a fast food restaurant that was in the car because we, you know, we get like kids meals every now and then and then they get the toy and those toys reside in a little box in our car so they can kind of play with them while we're driving. And it was like these little garden toys. And so we were like, where did those come from? I can't, I couldn't remember where they came from. And, uh, and Charlie was like, Charlie was like, oh, they came from, they came from Chick-fil-A. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, it says Chick-fil-A right here. Okay. My son is four. He can't read. Um, so like how do and he's like, can you hold the point that the logo, like yeah. the Chick-fil-A logo was printed on the toy. So like, yeah, my children recognize logos. They cannot read. They don't know the letters, mm-hmm. but they know the logo. It's crazy. Right. So like, so we are commercialized. So like, but I'm like, I try to like combat that. And so like, that's where I'm at. And so I have this. I have this kind of weird relationship with my own childhood, knowing that everything I loved and so many things that shaped me were shameless cash grabs. Oh, I know. Um, and I mean, and, it's, I'm just, I'm just kind of, it's funny cause you're painting this picture and it's like it, the, the, your, your, your children, you know, you're doing your best to kind of navigate a commercialized world, you know? And, and it's like, all I had to do was see a logo and it's like, Oh, I'm trying to like, if you're if you're listening to us, it's 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 probably, uh, I mean you're you're probably our age. You're probably 35. You probably came of age in the 90s. Maybe your gen actually came of age in the 80s. I don't know. <clears throat> um, so you probably spent your Saturday mornings in front of a TV for yep. a good two hours or something. You know, right. maybe more. And then of course there were there were the block the after school blocks yep. every, every single day. So just imagining like, oh, you, you know, you get one Chick-fil-A, Charlie sees one Chick-fil-A logo and he knows what Chick-fil-A is and he can recognize it and he can relate to it. Us sitting in front of our televisions at, at his same age and maybe a little bit older. And you do you I mean, I don't, you probably remember the commercialism of the time of the after school block of the Saturday morning block. Just oh, yeah. just bombarded with like. Every commercial, every TV show, every serial, <laughs> every everything. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think what was going on. See, I was I was Charlie's age, so Charlie's four. I was four in 1986, and so what was going on in 1986? It was um, My Little Pony. Yeah, I mean, I was aware <laughs> of He-Man. Like, I had He-Man toys. I had a few Transformers. Um, 86 was pretty much the height of like He-Man and Transformers. Yeah, but I was probably like, actually, here's what I was really into. I was really into like Superman, yeah, and uh, and Michael Knight from Knight Rider. 
I talked about this recently, I think. And, um, you know, like Michael Knight Rider, not a kid's show, but I had like, you know, I had a talking car. So I was totally going to watch that. And it had, um, and then there was, um, but like Superman, I had, I only knew of Superman through the superpowers action figure line, which, you know, was an eighties offshoot of super friends, right. the seventies cartoon. Um, I never watched super friends when I was a kid, like it wasn't really in reruns or anything, but that's, but you know, I had a relationship with the toys, with those, with those toys, um, from that, from that time period. And of course, Batman. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you think about like superheroes, like they're brightly colored, they have logos on them. Um, you know, so it already kind of gets you, you know, gravitating toward, um, toward all of that. And I think like, you know, John, you know, John Byrne, in re reinvented Superman for the eighties with the man, with his man of steel run after the end of, uh, the crisis on infinite earths and that rebranding of Superman kind of followed after a bit of, of Christopher Reeves depiction, but there was a very eighties like approach to it in that like Superman's colors were brighter. His S logo was almost like half his chest. Um, and it was, I mean, the first issue of Man of Steel is an iconic comic book cover of Superman ripping his shirt open. And it's just the, you know, the very like clean lines, diamond shaped mm-hmm. S logo, like just the, the, to me, the pristine, perfect Superman uh, logo. Yeah. And like, it was such a time for the 80s because it was branding. I mean, that's what they were doing. You know, it was branding and these characters became brands. Um and um, and I've just recently read through some of the John Byrne Superman run, and it I mean it's it to me it's the iconic Superman, but it it is such a Reagan he's such a Reagan character, and it makes so much sense why around this same time, Frank um, um, why am I forgetting his name J P, Dark Knight Rises Frank Miller, Frank Miller, that when Frank Miller is writing um, the Dark Knight Returns. Um, that when he's writing the Dark Knight Returns, he has Superman as a pawn of the Reagan administration. Yeah. Um, I know I just went on a tangent, but it's just th- th- that whole like mid eighties Reaganomics uh, thing. Unchecked was, capitalism. Unchecked capitalism and the impact that it had on our culture, and it still has on our culture. Yeah. You know, but but it was but <clears throat> oddly, I guess like for Reagan. It was cloaked in this very like, in this very like, oh, somewhat uh, you know like, homespun optimism. Yeah. You know, it was like you know we're you know we're we're gonna make sure that American businesses can run without impediment so that you can make as much money as you can. And there was and there was just a very kind of like yeah all right great you know like I own a garage and I work on cars and so you're gonna make sure that my business thrives and it was sold to everybody in that but you know it, it's very different than it is now where it is a very dark and it's very clear that it's just so that the wealthy can stay wealthy pretty much um but um and it had this insidious quality that I guess I, I don't know that Reagan himself would have been aware of um um I, I think Reagan was the kind of I think Reagan Reagan in Superman, um, 80s Superman are very, very kindred spirits in that it, it is that Frank Miller can show that like Superman in his idealism can be sort of like grabbed by a machine bigger than him yeah. and used for cynical dark purposes. And, um, I mean, I, I don't really rem- remember Reagan as president, so I don't have, I can't say much, but my, my, dip, my understanding of him from what I've read in history and what I've seen is I think that he was like, he was genuine, um, he just happened to be surrounded by some really awful blood sucking people. Yeah. 
and um, and that it 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 fostered this thing where yeah it was bright and optimistic and it had the veneer of optimism and hope and bright colors and all of that because when I think of my childhood and all that it was all bright I mean even GI Joe which is a show about war was bright Um, but on the other hand the dark piece of it was it turned me as a human being as a child into a commodity oh yeah and i became you know a buyer and seller and that's just what it was all about i was not a person i was you know i was someone who could drive my mother to the cash register to buy a bunch of stuff um yeah exactly and it's it's interesting when you take all this into account you know, when when we were growing up in the 80s, you know, we were basically like just kind of drooling on our toys. Um, but totally. The, but, you know, there's a whole generation who was a little bit older than us who was experiencing all these things, who, who you know, the, the 80s kids, a.k.a. Generation X. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you, when you consider that decade and how uh, unchecked the capitalism was and how like out of control the commercialism was and you compare that to the attitude of gen x in the 90s the following decade which was i'm not selling out man right (laughs) like everything sucks i don't like anything that isn't authentic well and let's take a moment to appreciate that a lot of that mentality was shaped by mtv yeah and mtv was also a product of this stuff, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. This is Don Draper madman thinking here, right? <laughs> Where it's not none of the idealism is genuine. It's all a means to an end. It's all a means to get people to buy stuff, to buy into a lifestyle and look. And MTV totally was trying to do that. That's why it's what MTV has always done. And they, of course, benefiting from this, created Nickelodeon, which you know, MTV for Gen X, like what MTV for Gen X was, Nickelodeon for um, us millennials yeah. was. I mean, you know, you and I, we're at the age where we're kind of like, you know, we've talked about how we're like old millennials or senior millennials or whatever. Like we're on that bridge. We can, we kind of identify, we can identify with Gen X people and we can identify with millennials, you know, a little bit. And um, yeah, we're apparently, we're, we're, we're known as uh, uh, X Xennials, I think is what they're at. Something whatever. Yeah. I hate labels, man. <laughs> Don't label me. Man. Don't label me. But whatever. I mean, MTV, MTV was totally, you know, their whole thing was they were going to create, well, they created youth culture for crying out loud. Yeah. I, but I feel like it was sort of like they, they were sort of exploiting the whole Gen X, you know, who cares? Advertising sucks kind of thing. Don't sell out. But it was inspired by the underground movements that were happening at the time like Nirvana and the Seattle scene and things going on right. in New York. Yeah. You know, Nirvana is a huge success is what inspired like the whole, just that the entire attitude and then you right. had like movies like reality bites. Uh, right. But again, like these are how much of it though, is just taking something that is like, like genuine and underground and trying to be free of commercialism and finding a way to stamp like a corporate brand on it and totally. make it into a lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. You There's can a, buy you can buy expensive you can buy Nirvana T-shirts at like Forever Twenty One now. I mean it's <laughs> yeah. you know it's um it's it, it's it's mean, just become, hot topic alone right like right it's it's just a um it it just that's the thing that like I mean Woodstock right okay so let's go, take a moment and go appreciate that you know like everybody talks about Woodstock is like the the pinnacle of like the hippie world and all of that yeah 
Have you ever looked at the history of Woodstock? It was a complete cash grab. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it's totally a cynical yeah. thing where people were commodifying the hippie counterculture movements in order to make a bunch of money. So, like, we've always done this. Um, but I just I just I love that. I love the idea, though, that MTV in the early 90s um, had this sort of cynical, you know, like, you know, don't sell out thing while talking on talking about this on a premium cable channel oh uh, yeah totally um, you know what's funny about and i think the reason why it got exploited so well is because there was an attitude right but that's but that's all it was they didn't right. they didn't take any action they didn't do anything <laughs> like they didn't do anything about it they were just like just don't sell out man like that then that's it that that was like the end point of, that that was the end game right. just and, be, just like uh just like you hear like oh just you know you just got to be tolerant uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I think um, Russell Brand's character in um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, um, Aldous Snow, I love the song that, op- that when they introduce his character in um, his music video um, in um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where it's the song is, We Got to Do Something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like the, it's, a, it's a perfect distillation of that, right? We just got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Something. We just got to do something. Yeah, um, it's funny you bring up Nickelodeon because that's actually has a pretty funny, pretty interesting history, and also in terms of its marketing and stuff. In the '80s, Nickelodeon was apparently like really bad; like it wasn't very. Well, good. Well, it started in the '70s, right? It started in the '70s, but, but like throughout the '80s, like it was not bringing in like any kind of numbers or anything. And it wasn't no. until I think like the '90s, like late '80s, early '90s, when they were like, "Oh, what if like our whole angle was like this whole thing is run by kids." Right. Yeah. I think that in the, the, um, and then, cause it started as a thing called pinwheel right. and then it became, um, Nickelodeon and the early logo was pretty crappy. Um, but that's, but th- th- you think about though, like they were doing stuff in those early days when no one was watching it that you could never do now. Like you can't do that on television. Oh my gosh. Holy yes. crap. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was once, it wasn't until they started producing some of their own programming, like, you know, the, the, the Pete and Pete shorts and then, oh, yes. um, salute your shorts. Hey dude. Um, and like those, the, kinds of, the, that the, when, and then of course, Nicktoons was Nicktoons, when it went yes. huge. Nice. Um, but then, hey, again, dude. I just, I said, Hey dude, oh, okay. <laughs> that's where, um, uh, but Ben Stiller's wife, what's her name? Uh, Christine uh, Taylor. Yeah. She got her start on that show. Yeah, sure did. Um, and, um, kids incorporated. Oh no, that was, that was a, uh, that was that Disney, Disney channel. Right? Yeah. But, yeah, um, Disney channel. Disney channel, which of course was totally chasing after MT after Nickelodeon's like thing. But, um, I, um, yeah, I, again, all possible because of the deregulation, right? Because it was all targeted at sort of manipulating children and getting them in front of television. I mean, when you just think about Nickelodeon alone. Right. Like just just uh, the commercial, like you, the, the commercial channel, basically. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> just the whole channel right. of commercials nonstop. Oh, I forgot to mention um, Clarissa Explains It All. That was also a key turning point. Hell yeah. In, in that uh, in that channel's life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember? Kane and I have talked about this. Do you remember going to Universal Orlando um, and seeing episodes of that show being filmed? I yes, I do. In fact, I remember I went I was. Uh, it was the weekend that Jurassic Park had come out, and my sister and her boyfriend took me to Universal Studios before I went to Space Camp, which is like, I don't know how 90s you can get in one sentence. <laughs> um, and they took me to 
we went to Universal Studios and we went to Nickelodeon Studios and I uh, you could see, there was like a there was like a two way glass right like you watch them get put their makeup on and stuff. Yeah. I remember seeing like uh, Ferguson <laughs> and uh, whoever the the actress who played the mom, you know, in their chairs and stuff. Yeah. And uh, Melissa Joan Hart, she wasn't there, uh, but. My I have a feeling Ferg- Ferguson probably lived there. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's just hanging out the Back to the Future, right? Kana Kana actually went to school, went to college with him. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, she she knows him. That's that's something I need to look up on IMDb. I want to know. She, she knows him now. Yeah, like I mean, like casual. I think they're Facebook friends. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, like she could like she could send him a message and he would reply to it like that that like, like you know maybe a like a couple days later not like they're like buddies yeah, like a message that, like would they, you like to go on my husband's podcast? Oh, I didn't even thought about that angle. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I, I've never thought. I just don't like. I don't. I feel weird about exploiting celebrities, but uh, We're not like, exploiting not anybody on this podcast. Sorry. <laughs> That's true. Um, exploiting my connections. Um, I was going to say we should have Kana on sometime just for the three of us to talk about Space Camp because we've all been. That would be awesome. Yes, let's do that. Um, what was it? Okay, so like my, my, my sister's boyfriend apparently knew somebody who was working at Nickelodeon Studios who worked in the wardrobe department at Closer Explains It All. And um, he was allowed to kind of go back, the three of us go back and just talk to her and they were just hanging out and stuff. And she looked at me, she's like, Are you a fan of Clarissa Explains It All? I was like, Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> And because, you know, this is like heaven for me. I'm like looking at all the costumes and stuff. And she's like, okay, well, here you go. And she pulls out a Polaroid of Melissa Joan Hart and, and, and a costume and she just gives it to me. That's awesome. And I have no idea where it is. <laughs> uh, I lost it. It's probably turned to vinegar by now. Probably. Yeah. Um, so. That's awesome. But yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the initial thing we talked about, uh, how awesome our childhood was growing up in the generation we grew up. And it was awesome because we were the first generation that had an entire entertainment industry targeted yes. directly to us. Yeah. So thanks, Ronald Reagan, I guess. But <laughs> This Mark S. Fowler guy. Mark S. Fowler. But, I, but the, 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 the thing, and we've talked about this in the podcast several times in the past, and that is you know, you've talked about how MTV – I mean, sorry, Nickelodeon was sort of – you feel is responsible – Largely responsible for like the the, the the immaturity that we see, especially I, among men. I mean, learning about this, my, my opinion has changed a little bit. I think oh, it goes. It? It, I think it goes back to this. This is the reason why this whole okay. deregulation is why, you know, you have that. Oh, it's such a great time to be a kid. Yeah, because you're being freaking bombarded every minute of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, yeah, MTV capitalized on a movement that was already taking place. Yeah. And so it, it fostered this thing about yeah, that childhood, because. For instance, I think back of uh, I watch um you know watching episodes of that '70s show, and Eric Foreman you know he has GI Joes and stuff, and Red constantly makes fun of his dad for those who never watched the show. They constantly he constantly kind of pokes fun at his son's immaturity for not you know growing up, and you know Red Foreman's whole thing is he you know he was a veteran of the Second World War. Um, or Korea or something, and that he's really cynical about the fact that the world hasn't turned out the way that he wanted it to be, and so he's sort of a bitter, he's a bitter older man. <laughs> that, and, that, that, there's a great episode where he reveals all that, because the first thing he says is, they were supposed to have flying cars. No, 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 hovercrafts. <laughs> oh, hovercrafts, okay. <laughs> we were supposed to have hovercrafts. <laughs> and, um, um, and that's sort of the central conflict of the father and son in the show, is that there's this, you know, this is generational thing, and that expectation that Eric needs to just sort of man up and become an adult. And that I feel like was true until the 80s when it suddenly became like 
well, we really need to just let kids be kids. We know they don't need to grow up too fast. And like, oh, look, they're having fun. Look at them. They're having fun. And plus, yeah. you know, it's the generation where the, the scales have been tipped and the, like, and so many kids, like 30 percent of kids are coming are coming from, you know, divorced households, you know, think yeah, sexual revolution. So much of it is so generational, and, too, on, on top of it. Right. So and so and so they're and so it's like single parents working that are just like, look, I just need like 10 minutes to myself. I'm going to plot my kid in front of the television. And and so it. You know, and so that kind of helped foster this this thing. And plus, you know, like I think my mom, like my mom's a pretty good example of, you know, she the the nostalgia bug bit her. You know, the '80s nostalgia bug, which also came around. On, you know, that's another thing that's worth talking about. And you know, so she, you know, her story is that she had some Barbie dolls when she was a kid, and they were stolen from her when they moved either to Puerto Rico or from Puerto Rico. I can't remember. And so her entire like childhood doll collection was stolen. And so that kind of led her later in life to be like, well, I want to kind of try to track the, you know, find some of the things I had as a kid. And that set her off on her Barbie collecting thing. And so she would bring me with her to like toy shows and things and sort of naturally led to me being interested in old toys and collectibles and things like that. Right. Um, like collectible toys. But I think like, and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, it, 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 that nostalgia, but like for me, I was, I actually kind of developed an interest in the stuff that was contemporary to my mom's time in a lot of ways, as much as I like things that were my own generation. Um, but I also think that that nostalgia bug, the way it hit my mom's generation, our parents, our, our parents' generation is what sort of fostered that sense of like, well, our parents expected us to grow up too fast. So let's not put too much pressure on these kids to grow up because well, I mean, the TV is basically saying that the kids need to be kids. But the TV, of course, is saying the kids need to be kids because the, the, the TV, <laughs> the, the, they get money from keeping the kids as being kids because yeah. then they can, you know, they buy more toys the longer they're, they're in stunted development. And so I think that um, – and so that's where the, that to me is where like the sort of insidious piece of this comes around. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. And and it is kind of a generational thing, too. You know, I was just thinking about, like, the – you were talking about Red Foreman and Eric Foreman, their relationship about that 70s show. You know, Red Foreman is greatest generation. Eric Foreman is, you know, basically a boomer, right? Kind of yeah. in between boomer and Gen, Gen X. You know, you kind of considered, like, he's so, like, offended by how Eric is not growing up. But, you know, it's, it's because – Red like lived through like World War Two and like the, the and, like his parents lived through the Depression, and like you know there was no like real potent marketing. It was all just trying to survive and, and like hoping we don't die in nuclear fire. So it's like you know by the time they start having children and come of age, you know it's like like barely any kind of emotion. A lot of PTSD. A lot of just like distance and unless you know um i don't know except for the occasional like go into the kids room and sit on their bed and start crying about their friend who took a shell to the face or something uh, <laughs> you know like that's like the only time they saw dad have emotion uh, uh, after a few after a few like nightcaps dad comes in and is like <laughs> let me tell you about cooper from from silver city like you're a real funny guy huh i knew a funny, funny guy he <laughs> <laughs> got himself killed he took a shell to the face one night we were sitting, we were doing, we were on the night watch and <laughs> we're comparing. He shows me a picture of this dame back home. He plans on marrying. <laughs> we were kids and, too, damn it. And then, we and were then, kids too. And then them krauts come out the woods. 
Yeah. So like that, I mean, that's, and that's, that's the attitude. That's, it's creating all these attitudes and that's sort of clashing out with the marketing. And it's so like, it, it's creates such a tension. And, and the, the question I want to ask you, Chuck. Yeah. How has this affected us in the long term? Like, how do you see, cause it feels today like, it kind of feels like, like I've heard some people say that advertising doesn't work anymore. Or at least not the way it did like in the eighties and nineties and stuff. And today it's like, you know, what people talk about, like, like the big, the big thing recently was Kaepernick, right? Kaepernick showing up on Nike. God, yes. And like the explosion of like the outrage and also the celebration and also like the stocks going up and like Nike suddenly sold, selling out everywhere. You don't really hear about that that much. It kind of feels like that was sort of like a reinvigoration of something that was kind of dead. See, I disagree. You think so? Um, I think, I think that I, I'm not sure if advertising still works the way it does. I mean, I know that there's some, I mean, there's research out there. I mean, Google, Google pretty much has perfected the ability to sort of do predictive, like okay. they, they, they know what you're going to buy before you buy it. And also Netflix's black magic algorithm, whatever, whatever they have. <laughs> yeah. The, um, um, but the, I, here's what, here, I, so maybe I, like I said, I, I'm not sure how I feel about whether or not advertising works. I'm, I, I mean, I can tell you that one time a few years ago, Kane and I, back when we still had standard cable, we were watching TV and a commercial for McDonald's, um, peppermint mocha coffee came on and it was like 10 o'clock at night and we were like, yes. And so we just <laughs> hopped in our car and drove to the McDonald's down the road to go pick up, you know, we were like, it totally, advertising totally worked on us, but <laughs> What I think has happened and what I'm really what I'm really fascinated and troubled by is the way in which this kind you know, us being an entire generation of consumers and that being sort of seen as a virtue and as like an identity, um, how that has affected us to where like buying Nike becomes a political act. Exactly. Yes. And that's another where, thing that's, yeah, that's another thing that's that's generation is that like corporations are our friends now. Right. Like we've talked about, this, you know, we talked about this a little bit, right. Recently with the, the, with the, with the corporate accounts, oh, you yeah. know, I, I can't remember if we recorded that, or if that was something you shared with me later with the whole moon pie Twitter account. Oh yeah. But, I shared that with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, off, uh, off it was off air. Yeah. The, the, the sense that like that these different, yeah. Like waffle house friend sort of like had a friend account friending moment with me on Instagram just because <laughs> I went to a waffle house. But but yeah, like because I also think back to Chick Fil A's controversy a few years ago, where it was it suddenly became like a both religious and civic duty to either buy or not buy Chick Fil A. Oh God, yeah. Like I have a friend, I have a friend who's gay, and he loves Chick Fil A. And there was a Chick Fil A on his way to work every um, at the where he worked several years ago. Um, then he he would frequently get like coffee and like some kind of breakfast item from Chick Fil A. Again, he is gay. He is openly gay. Mm -hmm. He's like, Chick-fil-A is delicious. I don't care. Their CEO can have whatever opinion he wants. I'm going to eat my chicken. I love it. Whatever. <laughs> um, he said that he had to hide his Chick-fil-A bag <laughs> from his coworkers who were straight because they would make a big deal about him going to Chick-fil-A. They're like, what are you doing supporting Chick-fil-A? Don't you know? And he's like, look, like, I think of all the people I'm allowed to make the decision whether I eat Chick-fil-A, right? Like, because... <laughs> I'm a gay man, and if they have, they have, they have they, they've talked about my people, like I'm gonna eat the Chick-fil-A. I don't care. Um, that chicken the, is good. I don't it's care. Delicious. It's not gonna change anything, right? Um, Sweet, the Hawaiian sauce is worth it. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, uh, but I, I, that, that to me was one of the, when I started really thinking about how, how this happens and how, you know, you know, we talk about, like I've seen comments recently about, um, about like people were saying like, Oh, if you want Spider-Man to stay in the Marvel cinematic universe, don't go see Venom. If Venom is a success and it'll encourage Sony to keep making these things and try to get Spider-Man back and all this. And like, so it becomes this, it becomes like this sacred act of like what you do with your dollar as if we could control them. Right. And, and you know, you think they're not controlling us. Right. And then like the weird stuff that happened with Star Wars and with um, well, with the Star Wars thing is so fascinating. I think we could do a whole episode on that that piece that recently dropped about how the evidence that there were Russian bots manipulating oh, people. God, yes. Opinion about Star Wars, which I, I really want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but the um, um, Batman versus Superman yeah. and the way that like. That that led to that whole thing about cl- accusing anyone who trashed the movie as being like bought by Marvel, and so like this big push of like go see the movie to support it, so that they continue making these movies, and like you know, and then them developing ways to like game the the Rotten Tomatoes score to help drive people <laughs> to go see it, and you know, it just it 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 all fits into an advertising mentality right. um, of psychological manipulation in order to get people to spend money the way you want them to spend it. And so I'm, I'm, it's kind of frightening where this has led, where this has led us as a people, Mm -hmm. because I would, I would venture to guess that in the seventies, this wasn't how people did things. I don't think so either. Um, you know, they were, you know, people weren't, people weren't, they didn't care. You know, they weren't drive making big, you know, pushes to go spend your money certain places and they weren't politicizing every purchase you make, you know, I mean, I'm sure there were some, but you know, nowadays it's like, and you know, and, and the thing about it, that the, the realization that I had this year is, you know, I was really kind of like really on like Disney's side for a long time and really following Marvel and like really kind of being behind the voices. There was a championing like, you know, Disney needs to hire uh, a a more diverse creative force at their Marvel and Star Wars franchises and stuff. And, you know, whenever they did it, it was all, it always like a victory. Like, yeah, we got, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, that's the guy that directed Black Panther. Oh, Ryan Coogler. Uh, We got Ryan Coogler to direct Black Panther. You know, that that's a win for us. That's a win for diversity. And, you know, it, it is, but it's not, that doesn't mean that Disney is like woke, <laughs> you know what I mean? And especially like, and they're doing all these things, you know, and Kevin Feige saying like, yeah, we're, we're going to have, we're, you know, Black Widow's finally going to get her movie. We're going to have more uh, women directors come on board. Uh, you know, Taika Waititi, you know, he directed Thor Ragnarok. He's a, he's a native of New Zealand. Um, Mary, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and these all felt like little victories and stuff. And it's like. People like were, were, you know, getting on Disney's side, and then they did this joke. This just they did this James Gunn thing, and right. when, when that happened, I was like, "Oh, what?" Like, okay, and then and clearly people were like, "Oh, it's just like a big mistake. They just don't get this." The blah blah blah. Like, no, they're doing exactly what a corporation does. Like, they know what right. they're doing. Like, and you know, and that's when I've started like to kind of pull back, like from. I guess caring so much about what corporations do, <laughs> like to, to kind of win diversity, because right. you kind of have to, because they just kind of even think like, 
it's all just it's all just for for the for the market like they're not trying to be woke they're just trying to find the brand that everyone's going to spend money on yeah and it's I mean, and it's, think... and it's and it's a i don't know it's it's sort of a it's kind of frustrating because like you you know an all-black superhero movie is great they should be made right. but at the same time it's like oh this is just more capitalism <laughs> you know like right Especially after when you, they kind of reveal their cards when they fired James Gunn over stupid conspiracy theory style allegations. Um, so yeah, I I I mean, yeah, and I think it, it's it, the whole thing is set up right to. I, I let me just point. Out, I think it's I think it's interesting that people got so outraged at Ariana Grande when she. Was it her who did that Pepsi commercial? Or was it Selena Gomez? They did that no, Pepsi Kylie commercial. Jenner. Oh, it was Kylie Jenner. Okay, so it was that Pepsi commercial. They all it, – it, it's yeah, – um, all these Instagram famous people kind of like merged together at some point to me. But um, 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 they, but they already made fun of that Pepsi commercial for like basically trying to show that like Pepsi could end like Black Lives Matter, right? Like it could yeah. solve the problems of like racial violence and tension or whatever, right? And And so people got upset about that. But then – Fast forward like two years, and now, now um, Nike is having a windfall yeah. year for the same thing that basically they're right. I mean, it's like people like are are stoked that you know Kaepernick's face and then causes all this outrage and what he represents, and then you, you consider like the conditions of like the places where Nike shoes are made in third world countries right. and like you know made in sweatshops. You know, like, well, who who is? I don't understand who is actually winning here. You know, right. are we coming to some kind of compromise that, like, yeah, we can be aware and awoke, take things seriously, and also still exploit people? Like, yeah. Well, I, I think of something that uh, theologian John Milbank um, has said years ago. I read this somewhere. He said that, um, you know, we live in a society where we are basically given a veneer of freedom. Um, you know, we can basically at this point, like we can do, we can do more drugs legally than we've ever wanted to before. We can sleep with whoever we want as a society without, you know, necessarily ramifications. And so that gives us the appearance of freedom. But when it comes to like our true substantial freedoms, those are quite, those are being whittled away gradually. And we're not paying attention to that because we're basically being thrown a bone over here. We're being said, oh, you're a free society because we're libertine. Like there's a difference between liberty and liberty and being libertine. And, um, and I think like this kind of stuff feeds into that mentality of of a post liberal society where we think that because and I and I also just theologically I think it's evidence of a world absent a cohesive understanding of the theological of God or something even if you know we have different religious expressions of it you know the fact that we've become sort of like a post religious society um, at large um, even though like our our religious identifications. For a long time, we're just you know lip service. But either way, without that kind of common, without a theological narrative, that sort of of some kind that sort of shapes our discourse, I think it's led us to make capitalism our god. I mean, case in point, Japan after World War II, 
um, we during the reconstruction of Tokyo, um, the provision the, the the provisional government set up by the United States required the emperor of Japan to renounce it, that he was a, that he was a deity, and to renounce emperor worship as part of a social function of a society. People have noted that that move is what lit, is what sort of shifted the Japanese focus away from their focus on like that that basically. The reason that they became such a technological society so quickly after that is that they shifted their allegiance of worship from this figurehead and into the the technologies and things that they could develop and the capitalism that they and and the, and the capitalism that we basically fed to them. I mean, if you ever read um, the American the, the American economist who gave whose theories he basically treated the entire Japanese society as a, a laboratory for his economic theories. Um, it's very fascinating. He's the reason why the Japanese work as hard as they do and all this stuff. Anyway, hmm. um, I think that that was I think what we saw in Japan there is a pretty good was a pretty good like uh, barometer for what is happening in our society now where we've without some kind of a sense of a theological because we are as humans, we are we are people that need to worship like whether and I think that's true regardless of anyone's theological leanings like that's just a true thing about us as humans and so i think now we're living in a world where the capitalist machine to sound marxist um <laughs> wants us to worship it mm-hmm. and that's what we're doing you know the dollar that we spend becomes a sacramental action and it you know like i mean i've seen i've seen this quote on facebook a lot increasing in increasing frequency lately and that is um it's the quote that's like, um, um, basically, every dollar you spend is like testifying to the kind of world that you want to exist. Okay, I thought you were going to say uh, there's no such thing as ethical consumption under, under capitalism. I haven't seen that one, but <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog on it. He's saying it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this, but there's become this very sacramental thing around the the spending of money and what we support, and this you know thing of like you know, and, then it, and it and it becomes its own branding, right? I mean, that's the thing that frustrates me during with the whole Brett Kavanaugh process, is that I'm not. I'm convinced that a good number of the people that are running around throwing around the Me Too hashtag, that there are a lot of those people that are doing that just because the liberal brand tells them to do it. Oh, yeah. And I feel like, that, and that's dangerous because it winds up distracting from the very real and very scary and messed up misogynistic um, patriarchal stuff that we need to address in our society because when it becomes co-opted as a brand, it loses its meaning and it just becomes another piece of the capitalist cycle. I think a a, a kind of a terrifying exercise to do would be to go on Twitter and search, search hashtag me too. And just like any fast food restaurant and just see what comes up. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, but that's the thing is I think, I think the hashtagging concept has also yielded to this. Mm-hmm. It's a li- it's a logo, it's a label, it's a brand. Um, yeah, the whole idea of branding and that like your social media presence is now referred to as your brand. Right. Like, yeah. That's scary to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that. Well, not to ever- me. We run a podcast, so that's that we're gonna we're gonna exploit that somehow. So. Well, I, I, here's the thing: is I'm I'm. You know, we brand the podcast because it gives us creative. It's just to give us creative boundaries, right. and it helps us in 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 putting it out there. And and I, I and it's fun, right? The podcast is its own to me. It's its own entity, but that's fun. Yeah. I'm I'm a little more concerned about when, like, I as an individual 
am expected to craft a brand. Now I have to live into that brand every single day of my life and I have to be consistent with my brand. Well, like, okay. So if I'm Coca-Cola, I have a marketing team. I have, um, I have a board of directors. Um, I have, um, um, you know, I have have multiple boards is in general, Um, I have a CEO, like I have all these mechanisms in place for like when the brand feels like, okay, well we need to change what we're doing. And so here's how we do it. And you know, a brand can change and it becomes successful or it fails or whatever. Um, but that's just sort of life we live. How does that work as an individual? Right. You know, like, because we're living in a world where people don't change because we don't want our brands to change. And so if I'm a brand and I set up my, I'd establish my brand when I'm 17 years old. Well, God forbid that I'm the same person when I'm 36 that I was when I was 17. But it seems like the whole concept around branding is expecting us to maintain that kind of consistency. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like, you know, we're we we get so worked up about, you know, you know, um, go ahead. Did you ever read any of those stories about like, uh, you know, like young girls on Instagram who just post a lot of pictures and then they kind of accrue like a massive following and like all these brands take notice and like, Oh, Hey, we know they have a big following. I think you could uh, wear this jean jacket and another yeah, influencers photo of your, of yourself. Yeah, sure. And then like, they'll just keep asking for like, they'll have more demands, like what to wear and, and what to like show on their Instagram. And as soon like their life becomes like, Oh, I'm like, I'm an advertiser now. Right. And you're, yeah, they call them influencers. And it's the, it's, it's basically like that to me that comes out of like what of professional, like, board sports, right? Like, uh, you know, professional surfer gets sponsored, like to be sponsored means that you stick the, you know, a brand's logo on your board. And then like, you're, you know, like if you're with Vans and that means you wear Vans shoes, um, you know, you're sponsored by, you know, a certain surfboard, you know, maker. So you always ride their boards. Like it becomes that whole thing. Um, and I feel like, you know, that was something that was, it was cool. Like that's kind of how you get paid, right? You get clothed and all kinds of stuff and you get, you know, you get to maintain your talent and your sports based off of stuff you're given, right? You're given free skateboards, free surfboards, free everything, um, um, in exchange for promoting these, these brands because of your talent as, you know, whatever. And, And they basically have done that through social media, but it's like, there's no talent, Right. It's just you're a, I mean, I guess I guess one could argue that the ability to amass a large following is some kind of a talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's um, but it is an interesting it is an interesting thing. And like, you know, I mean, I yeah, know, it's it, just, it is I mean, it's so there, complicated. There is I mean, like there's, um, you know, YouTuber. I actually just found out uh, this YouTuber that I follow, Lindsay, Lindsay Ellis. She, she does film criticism and stuff. She yeah. just revealed on Twitter a few weeks ago that a TV show that she wouldn't, she, she didn't want to name actually reached out to her and offered her like thousands and thousands of dollars to review quote review their show. Right. And she like turned them down. Cause like, she's like, they did not ask me to actually review it. Right. So like, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just the world we're living in now. Yeah. Where, and, and it's like, it's, it's so weird when, when, you know, we were talking about generation X and how they were, they, created this entire identity centered on I'm not going to sell out. I only like authentic things. Uh, and, and like, just like, that's just so non-existent today. And it's like, that's considered sort of unvirtuous today, even, <laughs> you know? Right. So it's, uh, we live in a world where, I, mean, I, th- I think that's why like deep, deep irony 
is sort of a very popular form of comedy today. Yeah. It's sort of very insincere irony, or like you can't tell if someone's being serious or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that that, I will just as an aside, I think that Gen X, we talk about that Gen X not selling out mentality. I do wonder though, just trying to think of like the music that I consumed in that time frame, um, how much of that though was, was white people, right? Oh, that was a white people yeah. concern. And that's the thing. Yeah. It was all white men who were sort of again, leading that whole movement. Cause I feel like in hip hop, in hip hop, there was, there was the, the there was the, the, the desire for legitimacy and legitimacy took on a capitalist dimension. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, that there, there's a darkness, there's a dark piece to the way that, you know, record executives handled the rise of hip hop and basically yeah. like, and the, and the racism that kind of comes from the executive, the race, the, the record executive side of things. But I, um, I, but I wonder, you know, how much of that then fed back into wider white culture around like that, that quest for legitimacy, but they already had the legitimacy. And so it became, you know, more about just sort of like rubbing people's faces in their privilege <laughs> rather than, um, just saying like, well, I got to get paid. Um, but you know, cause I think like, I just think about like Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez's song, Jenny from the block, yeah. like that sense of like, yeah, I'm on a yacht, but I'm still Jenny from the block. Like I haven't lost who I am. Like I made a bunch of money, but I've not lost who I am. Still like, representing. Of, You're representing. Right. Yeah. And, um, I find that, you know, that's a, that's another interesting piece behind all this. But anyway, yeah, to, to, for me, I, I see all of this as the, as the sum result, the aggregate of what began in the eighties and what it has done to us and our generation, because it's our generation now producing all of this stuff mm-hmm. and, and consuming we, mass quantities. Right. And we, you know, and I, and I think that like, for me, like I, like personally, I, I just try to pay attention to it. Like I try to, I try to, there are a lot of times I try to consciously, you know, examine the ways in which I'm being manipulated through advertising. Um, and, and I, you know, I try to question, you know, like, why am I interested in the things I'm interested in? And, um, you know, so, and I could go on a whole tangent with that, but I'm not going to because we're running out of time. But <laughs> at the same time, I love Disney, man. And they are <laughs> Disney, Disney the, the Disney parks that we've talked about before are they are they are shameless, but they do it in such a well done way that I just don't care. <laughs> They're like the exception to the rule for me, I guess. Yeah, they won. That's all. They won. Uh, yeah, they definitely <laughs> won. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, I enjoy our new socialist podcast, Chuck. It's- Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, um, and and please give to our Patreon so that we can help uh, help overturn the social order. <laughs> Great. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry. Oh, I just I love the I love the I love the uh, I love the hip the hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That we much. have here. Yeah, but hey. Um, but you know what? You're, you're actually hey. funding artists. We're, we're this is an art. We are the artists. This is our creative outlet. Art needs patronage, does it not? Yeah. yeah. I just think I just think of what Tupac said in Changes, man. He said, um, you know, in a, in a little conversation with a guy, he's like, hey, I made a G today. Yeah, but you made it in a sleazy way, selling crack to the kids. Well, I got to get paid, but hey, that's the way it is. Okay. And on that note, thank you so much for uh, – oh, I can hear the leaf blowers. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we're gonna sign off now with our um, our our trademark. 
You hear the working class outside that needs to uh, they need to rise up and seize the means of production. <laughs> it's going to happen, folks, and uh, we're, we're going to lead it. Masters of yep. Divinity Revolution. All right, yes. thank you so much for joining us. Join us again next week. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.